This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to be here on this occasion, and I'd like to thank the, orders, uh, the organizers very much for the opportunity of being here. Uh, now, is the uh, human mind unique? <coughs> Uh, I give you one example uh, that I think gives you a visual answer uh, without any uh, contradiction. And this uh, is uh, the earliest uh, work of representation known, or the earliest sculptural work of representation known. Um, it uh, dates from about 40,000 uh, years ago. <coughs> it's from uh, a site near Ulm, uh, and... Uh, uh, it's just a, a remarkable piece of work. It's about uh, uh, 18 uh, uh, inches high. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, I think I'm an archaeologist and I'm going to give you some uh, examples uh, of uh, aspects of the uh, uh, human mind that are certainly uh, unique uh, in a specifically human way. Now, uh, as an archaeologist... Um, I like to think of things uh, in a chronological framework and I like to think uh, about the narrative uh, and I think the narrative is very important if we are going to understand uh, what is humankind and how we have become what we are. And uh, I'm going to be by implication just a little uh, critical uh, of the uh, current consensus with which I don't really disagree, but I think it oversimplifies, uh, that um, uh, there was a moment, say 150,000 years ago, 200,000 years ago, uh, when the <clears throat> genetic evolution of our species, the DNA, uh, effectively uh, came together and was uh, largely complete, and that was the emergence of Homo sapiens. Uh, but as I will go on to say, I don't think it's quite as easy as that. But if we're talking about the narrative, uh, let's start uh, with uh, these uh, footsteps of our ancestor Australopithecus uh, of about uh, uh, three and a half million years ago. They're a remarkable image, uh, as you know. They're preserved in the volcanic ash at Lytoli. So here we catch the first glimpse, as it were, of our ancestor, the bipedal uh, hominid, uh, already showing one of the features, uh, which is generally said to be characteristic for humankind. And not so very long afterwards, uh, we see the first stone artifacts. This is a more sophisticated one by our ancestor Homo erectus, uh, made something like half a million years ago, and they are very symmetrical uh, and uh, very beautifully made. Uh, and the terminology man the toolmaker, of course, arose from the understanding of such objects, although it's been abundantly documented that many other species do indeed make tools for various purposes. Uh, but uh, I don't think it's the case that there are many other species uh, that make tools in order to make tools. And this particular artifact, this stone artifact, was made uh, by using tools which had been uh, produced for the purpose. 
But uh, I think it's fair to say that if you imagine uh, somebody coming in a spaceship from another galaxy, uh, if they looked at these works, uh, they would be, uh, if they noticed them at all, they would be particularly overwhelmed uh, by the uh, degree of intelligence uh, that was revealed. They might be if they thought more about it. Uh, and that is really my point. Uh, when we come to the emergence uh, of our species, Homo sapiens, uh, with uh, a slightly developed toolkit. But if you're uh, not a specialist in Paleolithic lithic industries, uh, you're actually quite hard put to it to know the difference. I'm not such a specialist, and I've always been slightly underwhelmed by the blade industries of the upper Paleolithic, which accompany uh, humans, uh, sapient humans, Homo sapiens, as compared to the industries, uh, indeed, which uh, Stephen Mythen was rightly praising, uh, of the Mysterium. Uh, so what else is so special at that point? Well, at the Blombos Cave, as you probably know, around 70,000 years ago, uh, we uh, have uh, the first um, examples of uh, red ochre, uh, which has been decorated, and I think that's not an inappropriate uh, word to use, with these uh, regularly incised lines. Uh, if you're an enthusiast for contemporary art, as indeed I am, you might regard these as the first art, uh, but uh, others would pre pre prefer to reserve that, uh, that uh, appellation for the wonderful figure from Hörlenstein Stadel uh, that we saw just a moment ago. So, okay, our people or our uh, beings uh, on the spaceship, I don't think they're going to be hugely impressed by this. Uh, but they may be by what uh, we also find, or what is also found uh, at Blombos, uh, which uh, is these uh, modestly pierced uh, shells, and I think it has been documented they are deliberately pierced, which were worn as uh, decorations, cosmimeta. Now, if you're uh, an enthusiast for the archaeological record, as I am, and you ask yourself, when is the first evidence for self-consciousness? You don't really find it in those tools, in those hand axes, but perhaps you find it here in these beads, um, which uh, uh, are deliberately put round uh, uh, the neck, presumably, or sometimes the feet, uh, and are deliberately used to be noticed by other people. And I think they do ask the question, how do I look in this? And the how do I look in this question is clearly a question of self-awareness. So that is a significant development, but a fairly subtle one, uh, and our beings from the spaceship may not be overwhelmed uh, by that particular feature. Well, uh, as you know, the out of Africa dispersal of our, spe of our species took place about uh, uh, 60,000 years ago, and so human humankind was propagated all over uh, the globe. Um, and I want you to notice the time lapses involve. Um, Homo sapiens, uh, probably the DNA signature, was well enough established by 150,000 years ago. 
Blombos uh, with the beads and self-awareness, the how do I look uh, effect, is about 70,000 years ago. So uh, it's now, uh, uh, this is 60,000 years ago, but it's not uh, uh, until 40,000 years ago uh, that we have the first cave painting, uh, basically contemporary and in the same general region as that first wonderful sculpture which I showed you. Uh, and so this is 40,000 years ago, uh, and uh, it is a remarkable phenomenon, the intense creative explosion, as John Pfeiffer called it, uh, of cave painting and uh, other works which we regard as artworks, and, uh, and why not, uh, which you see in France and Spain, and extending uh, as far as uh, uh, Eastern Europe, but I want to emphasize that this phenomenon is a very localized phenomenon. You don't find it, as far as is known in India, you don't find it uh, in the Americas, in the Paleolithic, that is to say, in the, uh, uh, in the Ice Age. Uh, it's a very wide phenomenon after 11,000 years ago, uh, universal, you might say, but an, until that time, it's very localized. And I think sometimes uh, that general historians are fooling themselves if they imagine uh, that this was a, a stage in the development of humankind. That is an open question. It's true there's good evidence for uh, Paleolithic, uh, that's Ice Age uh, um, uh, art, if you want to call it, that figuration in Australia also, which is very interesting, but uh, it's, uh, it's something uh, which is uh, localized. Uh, and it's not until much later that you get something which our space traveler is really going to take note of. If you're landing in a, spa in a spacecraft, and indeed some people have imagined that Stonehenge was built by people from spacecraft, but I'm not advocating uh, uh, that theory, uh, you would say, right, this is something to take note of. Who built these things? Uh, and Stonehenge dates from about 2,000 years ago. But we already find monumentality um, 10 uh, or 11,000 years ago. But until that time, there is nothing much uh, that our visitor from outer space would really have to take account of. And that leads me to uh, express the uh, sapient paradox, uh, which, uh, to summarize, I have it here. If Homo sapiens uh, was constituted genetically before 100,000 years ago, and the Neolithic Revolution, that is to say sedentism and its consequences, came after 11,000 years ago, what took so long? So uh, that, I think, is uh, a question that is worth uh, posing. And I'd like to uh, elaborate it in one or two ways. I want to take you now to Gebekli Tepe, uh, dating from about 10,000 years ago. Uh, and this is the earliest site of congregation that we know of in the world. And one principle, one human principle I want to emphasize is the principle of congregation, that human beings come together in great numbers for uh, entertainment, for religious purposes, for social purposes above all, uh, and of course uh, congregation is indeed uh, uh, noted uh, in many other species, uh, but uh, I think the principle of congregation is an important one which is well uh, exemplified uh, for the first time in the archaeological record at Gebekli Tepe. 
Then you get sedentism, uh, and this is an example from Chatalhuyuk, about 6,000 BC, an early village or town site, where you get these uh, very well-constructed dwellings. And it's at this time, uh, or perhaps a little earlier, that the notion of property first makes its uh, appearance. Property used to be written of a great deal by Marx and uh, Lewis Henry Morgan. It's not so much spoken of in the archaeological record uh, today, but I think it ought to be because it is an emergent uh, feature in the human experience, or so it can well be uh, argued. Uh, And then there is community, the sense of belonging to a specific group. Now, this uh, may well belong, well, does indeed happen in certain other species, packs of animals and so on, uh, but it is something which takes a new form with the construction of the first monuments. This is a megalithic monument in, uh, in Britain, the site of West Kennet for about 2,500 BC. Uh, and uh, I believe that it was the construction of such monuments that in some cases brought people together. They were used for burial, but they didn't always have to be the construction of such monuments, such monuments uh, that lead, led to a sense of uh, a community. And then the notion of value is an emergent feature. And here is gold, the oldest gold in the world. And these are very beautiful gold objects from the site of Varna around 4,500 BC. Now, we live uh, in the modern world by value. Money is, of course, something that we all use and think about and we understand money and we know what is more money and what is less money. But the concept of value seems to be an emergent feature in the human experience uh, of uh, uh, around 4,500 BC or perhaps a little earlier. And it is associated with material objects to which high value was ascribed. Of course, value is always ascribed, although some things look fancier than others. Gold is very nice, so it naturally uh, is valued in our own day. So uh, that is a point which I think is worth emphasizing, uh, and uh, it's part of the human story uh, that is sometimes uh, uh, overlooked. Uh, When we talk of the great leap of, uh, was it 150,000 years ago? Was it 70,000 years ago? Was it 10,000? years ago, value doesn't enter into the human story uh, until uh, this time of about uh, six or seven thousand years ago. And then one very important feature uh, which is much discussed and much worth discussing is the emergence of hierarchy in society. And this slide, I think, symbolizes it very well. Uh, This is the uh, Nama palette, uh, which uh, uh, is uh, contemporary with the first pharaohs of Egypt. uh, And it shows the pharaoh smiting uh, an unfortunate captive. Uh, Well, uh, the institution... Uh, of uh, ranks in society, not just comparative ranks, but indeed the institution of classes in society and the rule of the pharaoh uh, is what John Searle calls an institutional fact, and I think uh, rightly so. Uh, It's a fact uh, which emerges in human society uh, with uh, uh, the development of certain ways of thought which we don't really see emerging um, until uh, around uh, 3000 BC for the first time. We don't get a state society until around 3000 BC. 
it would be interesting to ask what institutional uh, facts uh, arise a lot earlier and uh, how we would recognize them. Uh, and that's uh, a question which uh, um, uh, I couldn't uh, uh, begin to answer here and now. But uh, uh, the point I'm making is that there are many things uh, which we think of uh, uh, as almost fundamental to humankind or certain, certainly uh, to the modern human world whose origins lie much deeper. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, I feel uh, that the, uh, uh, the, the single great leap, now you don't see it, now you do, of around whatever date it was, uh, is one which perhaps needs to be a little nuanced. And I think we have very much to learn uh, about uh, the process of uh, human, uh, the unfolding or emergence of these particularly human qualities, which we all recognize, but then certainly not all uh, present uh, 70,000 years ago uh, or 30,000 years ago uh, or whatever. So I want to conclude uh, with a, a cartoon uh, which uh, uh, I think uh, is an illuminating one uh, because uh, you see these uh, humans uh, um, and they're contemplating uh, the ants or whatever they are uh, which are building more or less an ant's nest. Well, what's remarkable in that? Uh, and I think the cartoon itself, like many aspects of good humour, uh, contains as many questions uh, as it answers. So that's what I would like to leave you with. Thank you very much. I recently hosted a dinner party to celebrate the publication of my last book about chimpanzee intelligence, my final book. No offense, but no academics were invited. I live in South Louisiana, so I decided to keep it simple. Boiled crawfish, live Cajun music, and beer. Now, a couple of people asked me what the book was about, but I told them just more monkey mind science and sent them back for the crawfish. But of course, there was the one guest who bit back. No, seriously, she insisted, what's the book about? Well, wait, I began awkwardly. Your chimps are fat? No, 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 not their weight. What they understand about weight. Uh, everyday things like rocks, sticks, your glass of beer. Your chimps drink beer? Woo, should have invited them to the party. Now, at that point, I realized I had to explain. No, seriously, I used to study what, if anything, chimps understand about unobservable things. Things like weight. I don't get it. What's unobservable about weight? Well, for example... The sensation in your hand right now as you're holding up that glass of beer. Would you say that's its weight? Uh, I'm going to say yes. Well, then what happens if I take it away and set it down over here? Does it still have weight? Again, I'm going to go with yes. How am I doing? Better than your monkeys? Eh, you'll have to buy the book to find out. Now, come on. How do you know it still weighs something? Well, it's obvious. It's not floating away, is it? Ah, see, it's obvious to you because you have a kind of theory about weight. I mean, nothing fancy, just a common sense theory. And part of your theory says that things that weigh something don't just float away. Anyhow, that's what the book's about. Trying to figure out whether chimps have simple theories about weight. Well, how on earth could you possibly figure that out? Well, the same way you would with a child. Wow, your chimps talk? No, 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 wait, 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 wait. Most of the time, my chimps would hang out in their group, grooming, fighting, wrestling in the hay, foraging, playing with barrels, burlap sacks, all sorts of stuff. But you see, early on, we taught them how to come out one at a time to, to play little games for food, but they were actually carefully designed tests. And the purpose of these tests would be what? Well, to find out if they have a theory of weight. My guest blinked. 
Well, come on, nobody seriously believes that chimps have theories, do they? Well, a lot of my colleagues do. They think chimps, lots of animals, form simple theories about all kinds of stuff. From gravity and weight to how each other's minds work to whether they're being treated fairly. Well, hold on, hold on. You were lucky enough to play with chimps for a living, and you study what they don't know about weight? Well, no, I mean, among other things, too, you're pulling my leg. Now, look, what's a good dinner host to do? I gave in. No, no, okay, you got me. We really study how smart they are. You know, how they use sticks to fish for termites. Now, that's interesting. You know, I just saw a National Geographic episode where dogs... Yeah, dogs. Cats, monkeys, people love stories about animal intelligence. And like my guests, they love to explain these stories in human terms. I mean, let's face it. It's much harder to imagine an encounter with a chimp for what I think it really is, a kind of alien contact. Now, don't get me wrong. Animals are really smart. In many ways, they're smarter than us. The honeybee communicates the location of a faraway patch of flowers to hive mates without saying a word. Bats and dolphins live in a consciousness composed of the reflected sound waves they bark out into the world. Some birds bury tens of thousands of seeds in a season and remember where most of them are months later. But look, here's a hypothesis. What if all these smarts are rooted in the unique blend of each species' body-centered mechanisms, coupled with variations in core abilities like memory and executive function, all interacting with a general mental inference system for, hold on, first-order, perceptually-based relational reasoning? Okay, now that's a mouthful, but what I mean is that no one doubts that animals keep track of innumerable perceptual objects in their world, sounds, smells, trees, other animals, and use them to encode past events and to anticipate future ones. I mean, hair on end, raised eyebrows from Joe, you're going to be attacked, run away. First order, perceptually based relational reasoning. And nobody doubts that animals abstract out across particular instances of relations, which is part of what makes them so smart. And, of course, different species can be smart in different ways. For example, those seed-bearing birds I mentioned earlier have a particularly enlarged region of the brain called the hippocampus, which can behave as a map of sorts, with the equivalent of neural asterisks marking where seeds are hidden. Animals are really smart. On this view, the foundations for the differing intelligences of animals began to emerge uh, during the Earth's explosion of life 500 million years ago. And ever since, evolution has been sculpting, exaggerating, minimizing, and morphing these systems to yield intelligences ranging from elephants to octopi. But let's be clear. On this view, the brains of birds and rats can implement those cognitive maps without knowing anything about maps at all. And dolphins and bats can forage and feed without having any notion of sound or speed. Our baboon, who anticipates attack, need have no inkling of past or future. I tried to make this point for over a decade and a half. Dan Dennett has been making it for almost four. In fact, I'm often reminded of Dan's observation about Alan Turing's great contribution to the cognitive revolution, that in order to be a perfect computing machine, it is not requisite to know a thing about arithmetic. So, when a chimp selects a tool of the appropriate length to retrieve a faraway banana, this doesn't mean she has a notion of space. No more than the exquisite diurnal clocks of animals imply they have a theory of time. So, let's not get too intimidated by the scrub jay who recalls where she buried thousands of seeds when we can't even find our keys. The scrub jay has no concept of memory on this hypothesis. For better or worse, we do. For the aficionados in the room, Derek Penn, Keith Holyoke, and I explained it like this. The human brain 
alone somehow instantiates the capacity to engage in higher-order, role-based relational reasoning. Now, a big part of what that means is just this, that we are really good at constructing analogies. And more than that, we're driven to find analogies in the world. We're compelled to look for connections between and among relationships that frequently don't appear perceptually similar at all and add in the kind of symbolism, and we speak of metaphor. Look, consider how easily the notion of love yesterday explains the behaviors as diverse as two lips touching, a handful of roses, or a gift of chocolates, or helping a friend repair a flooded home, or how falling sand, the rising sun, the gray hairs erupting into my sideburns are all bound by a common causal framework, time. And our drive to find analogies is what grounds our broader ability to seek out explanations. We stumble upon relationships that don't fit our expectations, and then we hunt for the underlying causes. And humans don't simply seek explanations, we desperately seek them. From the intricacies of our social relationships <laughs> to speculating about the causes of the common cold, we crave explanation. We're thrilled by it. We thrive on it. As my former colleague Alison Gopnik noted many years ago, using a formal analogy, no less, explanation is to human cognition as orgasm is to sexual reproduction. And look, this isn't just true of science. Science is just explanation on steroids, a manic drive for explanation. Well, what about chimps? Do they seek explanations? For example, despite all their social smarts, is there a chimp alive who believes that behind the eyes, the facial expressions and postures of her peers, there lies a hidden world of emotions, beliefs, and experience? And how could we possibly know? Well, consider again the seemingly prosaic question of weight. Like our bodies, the chimpanzees registers the effort it takes to lift things. Here's Megan. She's already learned to pick up this box and place it on a small platform. As you can see, it's pretty heavy, and she gets a slice of banana as a reward. Now, after a couple of trials like this, we secretly switch to a much lighter box. <laughs> Studies like this demonstrate that Megan's body remembers the weight of the box. She knows how much it should weigh. But in what sense does Megan know? Does she have the kind of mind that keeps track of weight as an underlying cause common to many different kind of relationships in the world? For example, after a lifetime immersed in human artifacts, can she infer that only a light object will stay balanced on a tower made of paper? Very thin. Could she immediately infer that a heavy object ought to be used to crack a hard nut? Dozens of experiments like this reveal an interpretable pattern. Megan and her peers learn every weight-related relation we teach them, but, but they don't see the connection between them. For example, Megan learns the relation, the ball that's easy to lift goes on the left, the one that's hard to lift goes on the right. Now, some problems like this take a chimpanzees hundreds of trials to learn everywhere. Others, only a dozen or so. But even after all the hard work that Megan puts into becoming an expert on weight sorting relations, she's absolutely befuddled when we ask her which ball she should roll down a highly familiar ramp, a heavy one or a ridiculously light one. Instead, for dozens and dozens of trials, she simply guesses, guesses, until her first order relational reasoning system catches up, slowly learning the relation in question. Look, at how the two relations here are unrelated in her mind, perfect still on ball sorting, at chance on ball dropping down the ramp. Even her ability to see weight is at issue. I mean, you and I easily inferred from the kinematics of Megan's behavior whether the red box that she was lifting is, was heavy or light. Can she do the same? 
Megan and her peers observe three caretakers struggling to push an 800-pound box into, into position, followed by a light one made of styrofoam that weighs so little it can be twirled around on a finger. Megan knows how to use a rope to pull in a box to grab an apple, but after watching all this, she can't infer which box she should pull. Now, I propose that this is because there isn't a chimp alive, not in the San Diego Zoo, not in South Louisiana, not in Leipzig, Germany, not in equatorial Africa, who represents weight in the way that I'm suggesting here. Weight, for them, is not a common cause that explains the sensation of lifting a box, the indentation an object makes on a pillow, or the shattering of a hard nut. In our technical jargon, Megan and her peers do not have access to the representation function weight. But humans manifestly do. I mean, at some point in our development, we construct an explanatory-like, higher-order representation of weight. Consider four-year-old Gracie. Even before she can comfortably find the words for heavy and light, her brain is computing weight as a common cause of the ramp and ball sorting tests. Strong ball! I used the strong ball! You did? Yeah, it was right here. How could you tell which was the strong one? This one! Gracie holding up the heavy one. How do you know that one's not strong? Because it's not... Watch! Gracie picks up the light ball. It's not even strong. She flings it into the air and it pings against the wall, then bounces across the floor. See? It's not even strong. It's not even strong. This one's strong. Look, if the explanation here today were limited to weight, I'd surely be wasting your time. But I believe that the same fact pattern holds across every domain of cognition. For many years, for example, we studied what chimps know about function seeing. Using their natural inclination to gesture to others for food and social interaction, we demonstrated that, like us, chimps know a whole lot about the posture and eye movements of others. But we simultaneously showed, using highly familiar scenarios, that despite their everyday experiences, they seemed to have no idea who to gesture to when confronted with someone who could see them and someone who couldn't. Even chimps raised from birth in human homes who were given days of first-person experience playing with a blue bucket that you can see through and a yellow one that you can't, didn't seem to know what someone else's experience would be like wearing the same buckets. I mean, look, there's a lot more to this story, but the general point holds. In order for animals to be intelligently responding to the postures, faces, eyes of others, it is not requisite to know a thing about function seeing. Now, a warning, of course. My colleagues disagree. They think animals do have theory-like abilities. But let me offer this secret decoder ring, a framework for assessing their objections. Are there any experimental results demonstrating that animals reason about underlying common causes of relationships between relationships? Or do they just show what no one ever disputed, that, even anim that animals, even us, most of the time, get on very well using first-order perceptually-based relational reasoning, thank you very much. And consider, after a, a different project, a decade-long project, investigating the tool-using abilities revealed the same animals. Chimps can make and use simple tools without building or seeking explanations for why they work the way they do. And consider now more directly the question of whether or not chimps and humans seek explanations. Whether they ask why. Chimps and children can be taught just about any relational problem within their sensory capabilities. Here, we've taught them the relation stand up this inverted block and get a reward. But when we probe their deeper cognitive attitude toward this situation, 
by switching to a block that can't reproduce the learned relation, the difference between them and us becomes apparent. The cognitive attitude. By four years of age, children rapidly, almost reflexively, intervene, augmenting their first-order relational reasoning with focused attempts to diagnose why the block won't stand. They seek out underlying cause. Chimps work hard, occasionally invent clever solutions, but in many studies logically akin to this, they never intervene. They never seem to ask why. So, hooray for humans? Well, time will tell, I suppose. Consider weight again. Even as our species assimilated ideas of weight into scales and balances, pulleys and pyramids, many of these things began to tumble forth from the human mind. Within a blink, humans catapulted from leather slingshots to gravitational slingshots around other worlds. And no more than a few nanoseconds into our post-Newtonian understanding of mass, we cleaved the atom and two bombs fell, like heavy, portending raindrops, harbingers of some awful cataclysmic storm. Politicians, technocrats, and working scientists have desperately staved off this storm for decades, but within our lifetimes they may well fail. It seems to me that increasingly scientists practice explanation as a kind of mania, and maybe always have. And what's coming of this frenetic activity? The great, the good, the bad, the ugly, and worse, that's to be sure. Cancer cures and plague-scale biological weapons. The joys of remote-controlled toys and the terrors of predator drones. Camera-laden pills launched on majestic flights through the human body and robots the size of a fly that will soon render our notions of privacy perhaps obsolete. The endless entertainment of virtual games and the growing waves of children, isolated and angry, texting and sexting. Invisible waves of information connecting us, drawing us closer, sharing experiences in wondrous new ways, and the first clumsy steps toward the wireless implants that will render our precious cell phones archaic and the face-to-face communication increasingly quaint. Brain imaging technology locating tumors and traumas and paving the way for ever more powerful forms of control. Implants that allow the deaf to hear, the wounded to walk, and intelligent robots who may sooner than we think start reproducing themselves, taking over as the dominant form of life on the planet. And the transhumanists cheer on, calling for the even faster, more deliberate fusion of human and machine, some even heralding the extinction of the human race as the logical culmination of our ill-fated explanatory project. (laughs) One thing's certain, the enthusiasm of the human scientist has not waned. And that defining behavior of us, that finger we pointed skyward, lo, those many years ago, demanding to know why, has not curled back. That awestruck child still asserts that nothing must stand in the way of deeper explanation. But look, what if some plucky young scholar were soon to provide a proof, a mathematical certainty that our explanatory addiction has become a tad misdirected, maybe a tad out of whack? What if its upwardly ratcheting effects will inevitably lead to a declining sum of human happiness, or even extinction. What then? Would we conclude that human happiness was overrated, that human life was overrated, or would we make room to consider the possibility that at least in some ways our explanatory mania is itself a little overrated? And look, could we even do anything about this explanation if we wanted? Could we loosen the egoistic bow of that finger? Anyhow, it's poppycock, say the enthusiasts, The scientific truths revealed through the orgasmic explanatory experiences of humans are either A, yielding the best possible of all worlds, or B, unstoppable anyhow. I end with a footnote just to acknowledge that some may find all of this pessimistic, worse yet, anti-intellectual. 
But quite to the contrary, I'm actually extraordinarily optimistic that the uniquely human capacity to explain, to ask why, will build steam toward exploring and explaining the awesome implications of human explanation itself. And a final, final quick footnote. To those who think a critique like this is easy, it isn't. Performing science was easy. Seeing the effects of science more objectively, far harder. Thank you. Well, thanks very much. And um, so the question that I'm interested in is where do moral values come from? And of course, as you know, traditionally there have been a variety of answers. One is that God provides. Um, This has not worked all that well when you look over historical time because for at least uh, about 200,000 years, humans appear to have, homo sapiens that is, appear to have lived in very small groups. Organized religion appears not to have emerged and taken hold until well after the advent of agriculture. Nevertheless, there's good reason to think that those small groups lived in some sort of accord, had some kind of cooperation, and so forth. Now, a number of people have looked at this question and have said that perhaps there is a platform that is in common amongst all mammals, different probably from bees and ants, but something that we see that is unique to all mammals and that it has its roots in something very special that happened in the development of the mammalian brain. And that is a reorganization of that part of the brain to ensure that the parents, or at least the mother, cares for the offspring. And so that's the hypothesis I'm going to look at uh, a little more closely. Now, it is also quite common, along with the idea that um, religion is the source of moral value, to say that somehow humans with their big, fat, wonderful, powerful brains use their reason, and then we just teach the little buggers uh, to do the right thing. And if we don't do that, uh, they're not likely to behave properly. Darwin, interestingly, um, took a very different view. And so rather than the view that Dawkins has, which is somehow that caring for others is sort of unnatural and has to be forced on, um, on, on the young, Darwin had a very different take on it. Now, in preparing this talk, I was moved to think about this wonderful old idea that was very common in the Elizabethan periods, but probably before that too, which organized all of the stuff in the world according to a kind of hierarchy, with God, of course, at the top, and then angels, heaven, I'm not quite sure, anyway, whatever. Uh, Man, sometimes woman was in there, sometimes woman was not, or at least there was a big space between the two. Um, Animals, plants, fire, and rocks. Well, it's sort of a motley crew, but the important part is that Humans are, actually, and this is actually something that Nick Humphrey referred to, a bit like the angels. Now, there were many different stories about the great chain of being. Some had aristocrats and then plebeians. Um, others didn't make that distinction. But my all-time favorite is this one. And uh, that is because, of course, it puts mathematicians uh, ahead of God. 
Now, I don't know, it's partly, um, I'm guessing now, I'm no sociologist, so I'm just making this up, but I think it's partly the influence of this idea of the great chain of being that has motivated sometimes some rather uncritical and uninformed claims about the nature of human nature. That only humans are conscious, that only humans have empathy, that only humans have insight, or only humans can talk and think. Well, aren't we grand? (laughs) Now, one of the things that is surely remarkable over the last several decades is the work that's been done by primatologists and other field biologists, by archaeologists, and by geneticists. And I think one of the lessons of of biology in general is that, yes, of course, we're grand, uh, but maybe we shouldn't quite overstate the case. And that rather than putting ourselves up there as the pinnacle, uh, we're there along with snakes and dung beetles and all the rest. But it has been very common, especially amongst philosophers, to insist that only humans are genuinely moral, after which comes quite a long sermon devoid of very much evidence. What did Darwin think? Well, Darwin thought that our moral sense or conscience is rooted in essentially three things. Our social instincts, and I'm going to link that to the thing I mentioned early on, attachment to offspring to others, habits, but habits, of course, are subcortical. It's part of the reward system, and you only get fancy, interesting institutions and habits when those subcortical structures hold hands in the right sort of way uh, with cortex. Ditto for reason. Now, we don't, of course, really know very much in detail about the evolution of mammals, We know something about the end product, but much of what happened in between is still guesswork. And even the date, actually, as we know from the most recent issue of Science, uh, is still rather controversial. But there were a number of factors that came together in a really interesting way. And one was homeothermy. And almost certainly the first uh, sauropsids, reptiles who were warm-blooded, had a very special advantage They could hunt at night when it was cold, and they could also hunt further afield. The downside was you have to eat 10 times as much if you're a homeotherm. Another thing that happened with mammals and also with birds is that we see this development of this rather extraordinary thing, the laminar cortex. In birds, it's not laminar, so I'm just going to leave birds uh, to the side and acknowledgments to uh, Harvey Carton. So we get laminar cortex. Well, what is this? And why is it so great? And the answer seems to be that one of the things that happens is infants are born very immature amongst mammals. You have very few of them. They're very immature. They tune themselves up. That is, their brains tune up to the local environment. Their brains, by virtue of cortex, have a much more flexibility Uh, than does a newt or a a turtle. And finally, of course, there is this remarkable invention of the placenta, 
which releases all kinds of important neurochemicals into uh, the body and the brain. The placenta is a whole beautiful story of its own, uh, and I won't go there. So the, the basic logic of the way this story goes is that until mammals, there were many social animals, social insects, and sociality of one kind or another probably evolved many times. But by and large, the brain stem was organized to see to my food, my water, my warmth, my safety. Once we have mammals with the reconfiguration of the hypothalamus, we see something quite different. That that sense of me now extends to my offspring, to mine. And that is a huge, huge difference. Now, of course, certain other things had to happen. Um, that is, I don't feel the baby's hunger, so the baby has to do a very special thing, namely squeal, which causes pain in me, which causes me uh, then to react appropriately. So on this really rather different approach to the nature of sociality, sociability turns out to be a basic value for social mammals. It's a basic value in the case of mammals because it allows for the nurturing of the offspring. But also as evolution marched on, it turned out that group living offered certain very special kinds of advantages, both against predation and also in cooperation uh, in the hunt. The hub of the story, but it's only the hub, and it may not even be the hub, um, is this nanopeptide uh, oxytocin. It's augmented by the reward system and elaborated with the expansion of the cortex, which, as Jacques Panksepp is fond of saying, for all intents and purposes, is a blank slate, uh, at least just before birth. So one of the things we see, but we do not yet really understand, is this expansion of the brain and the expansion of the cortex. And we don't, and, and, and I think in large measure, we don't understand it because we don't really know what the cortex is doing for us. We say, well, it makes us smart. Well, yes, fine. So just to remind you, the cortex has this remarkable laminar structure. If you look at what's called the dorsal cortex of a reptile, it's just this kind of loose, maybe two-layer thing. And somehow this laminar cortex was able to expand hugely in, uh, in humans. And why exactly it was selected for, we don't know. What we do know, though, is that as uh, the mammalian radiation proceeded, there were many, many different kinds of ways of being social. There was just me and my offspring, which maybe characterizes grizzly bears, but then there were others that were me, my offspring, and my kith, the others in the group. And kind of depending on ecological conditions and how things were working out, um, then it, it, you may have a large group or not. Now, it, Given that basic story, it looks like there were many ways of tweaking the platform. The platform that consists of new circuitry plus oxytocin, vasopressin, the um, prolactins, um, the opioids, the cannabinoids, many ways of tweaking those. And we learned this from the prairie voles 
who turn out to be monogamous pair bonders, at least up to a point. Uh, that is that uh, some of them uh, do get a bit on the side, but by and large their reproductive action uh, is, is localized. And so what happens is the male uh, prairie vole and the female prairie vole meet, they mate, and they're bonded forever. And the male guards the nest, he huddles over the young, and this is completely different from what we see, say, in montane voles. Now, a lot of work was done to try to uncover what might be the relationship between this rather remarkable behavior and the brain. And the very fast answer, which is really not exactly understood, goes something like this. That there's the density for receptors for vasopressin in the male prairie vole in one very special region of the reward system, the ventral pallidum, is much higher than in the montane vole. And in one other very special region of the reward system, the nucleus accumbens, receptors for oxytocin are much higher. The density is much higher. So you can do all the manipulations you think of, and basically it turns out that this is very important uh, for the prairie vole. Now, I emphasize for the prairie vole because it turns out when you know look at very recent data on other animals, including some birds, but also including mice, that the story may be a little bit different, that there are many ways of tweaking the genes, many ways of resetting that circuitry, altering density of receptors, and so forth, um, in order to get the effect. Now, I think oxytocin can be related to trust in a kind of interesting way. What we do know is that it's released in the hypothalamus and it downregulates activity in the amygdala. That causes a decrease in defensive postures, a feeling of it's okay, a feeling of, of, of safety. It also downregulates the sympathetic response uh, in the brainstem. Now, the story is much, much more complicated than that, but it's a very interesting first beginning that oxytocin should play this important role. Does it account for this hedonic aspect that we think is there between mother and infant? Probably not. Probably other things have to be there as well, such as the endogenous opioids or the endocannabinoids. Uh, so that part of that feeling of love is not just going to come from oxytocin. Now, I mention that just to be a little bit curmudgeonly because um, there has been a tendency in the recent past to talk about oxytocin as the cuddle molecule or the moral molecule and so forth. And while that's really kind of fun when you're in the bar, it's not actually accurate uh, for what we think. So... It relates then to trust in a, in a deep way, I think, because if animals like to be together, then trusting behavior and cooperation can emerge. And so in the case of wolves, you can see that these wolves are able to, um, here's a grizzly, she's brought down a caribou, and the wolves will drive her off. They are, they are well-placed around her, and they will just harass her and harass her, and eventually she will go. And it's interesting also to notice that they go through a kind of ritual beforehand where the wolves get together, they all lick each other, they're happy to be with each other, the male mounts them all, everybody knows who's who, uh, and off they go. I, 
it's not been shown that you need a special gene for this. It may be enough, and in the case of humans who cooperate together, um, we have no evidence so far to think that there is a special cooperation gene. It may be that through this orchestration of this suite of neurochemicals in this very particular circuitry, that that's enough to give you the sort of platform for friendship and trust that can then flower into cooperation. And cooperation can take many forms. Okay, so over the last, uh, and, and this is partly as a result of coming to these wonderful Carter meetings, over the last 10 or 15 years, um, field biologists in particular have reported on many kinds of social behavior. They see reconciliation behavior. And uh, Duvall has reported on that from when he was a graduate student working at the zoo. Consolation behavior, when one animal dies or is hurt, the others console. Uh, you may want to say it's not real co consolation because they don't have real language or something. Eh, you'd have a hard time persuading me, probably. We certainly also see food sharing. We see third-party punishment in baboons, for example. We see alloparenting in chimpanzees. I know I've mentioned this on other occasions, but Chris Besh has, in the Ngogogo Reserve in Africa, has five disti uh, distinct cases of male chimpanzees who adopt orphans who are not related to them. They are not their sons or daughters. They can tell um, by the DNA. And importantly, there is imitation learning. Of course, we do it in spades in humans, but uh, it is certainly also there to be seen in dogs, in wolves, in baboons, and chimpanzees. And of course, there is lots and lots of playing. And I want to end with this slide, and I know some of you have seen this before, but um, it, makes a real, it makes a serious point. And the serious point is that we all learn that orangs uh, orangutans are, are loners. And that is their nature, to be loners. Well, you know, it kind of depends. They are mammals. And it is true that in Sumatra and Borneo, by and large, they are. But when the resources are plentiful, and when conditions change, or as you might say, when institutions change, different behavior can emerge. And so in this instance, we see this very uh, tight friendship between a dog uh, and an orang. And similar kinds of behavior has been seen um, between bears and other animals, but also even between a dog and a fawn and so forth. What, where does that come from? I think it's sort of a bit of sloppiness in the system, that there is lots of flexibility in cortex. And when you have that kind of flexibility, that allows you to do things like fall in love with a dog. Okay, thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.